I wanted you to be um, encouraged by a few of the, just to start off uh, this morning, a few of the questions that our students, our fifth through seventh graders are, ask, are asking. Um, uh, a couple of the questions are, um, why, why was Jesus hung on the cross? Why did God not stop sin? Uh, where did God come from? What is Satan? Why is Satan so mean? Yeah. Um, how old are you, Frank? <laughs> Why did God give us free will if he wanted us to love him? So those of you that have those answers in full, just meet me in the back there, and we'll let you kind of give those, dispense those to the kids after, after service here. Uh, it's cool. I mean, these are, these are our fifth through seventh graders. And I just said, hey, write a, write a question. Write one question that you don't know or that you wonder about. Put it on a three-by-five card and give it to me. Don't put your name on it. And we're going to talk through some of those. Um, but what might seem as, you know, trite and surfacy, uh, our, our kids are not. They're, they, you know, they, they have got some big questions that are underneath the surface. Um, this week, uh, we're going to continue in our series on generosity and I want us to think of generosity this morning um, in terms of, uh, in context of relationships. And I, I want to ask you this, um, what, what does pa- patience mean to your relationships? Um, would you be described by your closest friends as a patient person? Um, what effect does patience have on your uh, relationships? Um, in, in what way could patience uh, be, be described you know, as, as generous in, in relationships? I, um, I read about this study done by the AAA Foundation for Traffic Safety um, where it, just, it stated that nearly 80% of U.S. drivers express significant anger, aggression, or road rage behind the wheel at least once in the past year. It says the most alarming findings suggest that approximately 8 million of United States drivers engaged in extreme examples of road rage, including purposefully ramming another vehicle or getting out of the car to confront another driver, of which I'm sure none of us are a part of, right, in any way. 51% say, uh, said that they purposefully tailgated, right? Uh, 47% said that yell, they yelled at another driver. 45% uh, would honk to show annoyance or anger. 33% made angry gestures and 24% tried to block another vehicle from changing lanes, of which I've never done. Um, <laughs> right? um, a, a way in which, uh, you know, our, our society is diagnosed, right? As being impatient or we struggle with this whole idea, this Journalist Alex Stone tells this story of how executives at at the Houston airport faced and then solved this problem of of passenger complaints about these long waits at baggage claim, right? They they first, here's what their first solution was. They decided at Houston airport they were going to hire more baggage handlers and they were going to reduce the wait times. um, And so that, that actually happened. And they reduced the wait time to under eight minutes, right? And 
um, they were pretty excited, but they noticed that the complaints persisted. And this didn't make any sense uh, to the executives of this airport until, um, until they discovered that on average, it took the passengers uh, just one minute to walk to baggage claim. Resulting in this, they say, it was like a hurry up and wait situation. The walk time was not a problem. It was the remaining seven empty minutes of staring at the baggage carousel that was. So, in this burst of innovation, it says, the executives moved the arrival gates farther away from the baggage claim area. Now, passengers had to walk farther between their bags. Um, uh, but their, yeah, passengers now had to walk farther, but their bags were often waiting for them when they arrived. Problem solved. The complaints actually dropped. Um, and, and so... Uh, This guy, this journalist, Alex Stone, interviewed an MIT operations researcher named Richard Larson. And he's the world's leading expert on waiting in lines, right? I just went to Epcot on Monday. And this is is a sin factory lines, right? Experience that firsthand, right? To discover the psychology behind our waiting. And he said, what happened at the Houston airport makes for a perfect illustration, Larson said that the length of our wait is not as important as what we're doing while we wait. He, he quote, he says, often the psychology of queuing is more important than the statistics of the wait itself. Essentially, we tolerate occupied time, walking to baggage claim, far better than unoccupied time, such as standing in front of the baggage carousel. It gives us something to do while we wait, and the weight, it says, becomes now becomes endurable, right? That, I think, is a good correlation to waiting on God, right? Because sometimes in our lives, maybe right now, you are waiting on God, and it feels like there's unoccupied time right now in your life. And we wait, and I ask myself, but what is actually happening, right? What is actually happening um, behind the scenes, Right? Is God, God, are you doing anything while I'm waiting, right? Waiting on God, right? It, 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 it implies this, to having patience and developing a new perspective of what God is doing while we wait on him. Are you a patient, are you a patient person? Would your significant other classify you as patient? Would your closest friends say you're patient? We turn to the book of James, and we're going to look at James chapter 5. Why is James important? It's the half-brother of Jesus. James grew up with Jesus. When you look at the book of James, I believe he wrote that letter based upon, um, hey, I I stared at my half-brother, Jesus, my entire life. And here's the way we're called to live, right? Here's the way, here's what it, it can look like. In fact, my brother would do this. He could live this way. Are you patient? Am I patient? What does that, how does that affect your living room, your bedroom, your Six-period English classroom. How does, it, how does it affect every client um, interaction that you have? Are you patient? He, he says in uh, James chapter 5, verse 7. We're only going to look at about six verses. Straightforward. Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and the spring rains, you too. Be patient 
and stand firm. Because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who had persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Are you patient? Are you? Did the Lord bring you here this morning to look at your life in this way? What does it mean for you to, hey, add this element in, to to have the Spirit bring this out inside of you? You know, when you're looking at this passage, um, he he looks... um, you know, at, at these sins of being impatient. And, and a lot of times, um, I think of my life and, and my spiritual formation, my walk with God, in these big, huge spiritual battles that I can be in. Like these epic ones. Like maybe once a year, or maybe a few times a year. Maybe when I was, you know, whenever. Like these big moments. But when you read the book of James, I think what we, what we see here is this. is James is showing us that, in a sense, the big spiritual battles in your life and in my life are not these dramatic, historic, spotlight kind of moments at all. The big spiritual battles for your soul, the thing that's going to determine who you are in the very end, right? It has to do with more of the small choices that you made, maybe even this morning. Like, how did patience play itself out when you got up and you went into the kitchen, right? Or when you got dressed or when you interacted with your family, when you made that call or, or did that email this morning or, or you, you sent that text, right? I, I think we see that in James. It's the small everyday choices that, that I make and that you make, right? This is the battle for my soul and the battle for your soul. How do we understand this? And so when we look at it this way, instead of like, are you a robber, right? These sins, these huge sins, or do you commit murder or whatever? And maybe you feel pretty good. Maybe you're not, you don't forge things, or maybe you don't, you know, commit felonies, and you feel okay, but then when James begins to talk about things like patience, he's trying to tell us, you need to be warned against impatience if that's who you are. If you're a jealous person, maybe you've forgotten God. What is your attitude like? It is so very important. In fact, he says, if you want to walk the way of heaven, You tell other people, I want to give my life for yours. That's the way to heaven. Every day, I want to give my life for yours. If you want to walk to hell, if you want what the way of hell is, here's what James says. It's you saying, I'm going to sacrifice you for me. Plain and simple. The way to heaven is saying, no, I I sacrifice me for you. The way to hell is, I sacrifice you for me. And James says, it plays itself out. It plays itself out with our tongues and our words. It plays itself out is as to whether or not you are a, a patient person or not, right? What is in the way, right? How do you talk to people? Because the context he, he, he uses initially is, he says, look, do you grumble against each other? Do you talk poorly about one another? Are you that type of person that grumbles, right? That, that when you see your brother or your sister, man, you find the speck, right? You can see it. And, you know, I think a lot of us, when we think about relationships, when we think about, okay, who do I gravitate to? Who, who, who is natural for me to, to kind of befriend? Think about it. 
You know, um, you know it's, it's, it's the people that, you know what, this person can actually help my career. Because if I network well and get this person, this is going to help my job. It's going to give me some more prospects. You know, I want to be around those types of people, right? I, I, I think that can really help me. And you know what? I want to be around this type of family because I see the way those kids are disciplined and I need help. I need help disciplining my kids or, or loving my kids or whatever it may be and we can gravitate to them, right? Or, you know, I want to be around people that have a lot of friends because I want to be more relatable. I want to have this and we move that way. I, I want to be around good-looking people. I want to associate myself with the physically attractive, right? We can easily move in that way, but all the while we're thinking, that's right, you, I can use you for me, right? It's, it's I will sacrifice you for the good of me. And, and we enter into those types of relationships, and James was seeing this, James was seeing this all around the first century church. But this is in contrast to, think about those people in your life that you know are hurting, Right? Do you gravitate towards them? Because then when someone's hurting and they come and talk to you, you know the way to heaven is I kill self and give to them. Right? I am going to kill myself and help the what? The hurting. I know they don't have a lot of people that talk to them. And you know why? Because they're awkward socially. And every time we have a conversation, they're needy. And they have to expound a lot or expend a lot of words. And it's taxing on me. That's right. James says, that's right, so you kill self for what? For them, to give to them. You, I know that they're all consuming, but you know what? Hey, what does it look like to what? To, to, give, to give to them. You see, heaven and hell are under every bush, right? They're in the small things, right? Your life for mine or my life for yours. Which way is it going to be, Westtown, right? Which way is it going to be, Frank? The first thing that we see, the attitudes in the everyday, are we going to see it that way? The way of heaven and and the way of hell are chosen in the everyday. We see this all through the book of James. We we make these decisions, right? And so we look at at, uh, what James says. What is he actually saying here? He says, first and foremost, he says, be patient. Putting a little uh, meat on the bones there. Do you have a spirit, right, of kind of this steadfastness, this serenity, a spirit of almost of, of quietness, of okayness in your, you know, under most circumstances? Not perfectly, but do you have that? Because that's offered to us. That's what he's saying. That is offered to us. And, and he begins to warn us, or are you the type of person that's so restless, right? You are quickly irritable. You are quickly irritated. And do you find the thing in the situation that, is, um, that you can complain about, right? Do I, do I go to Epcot and think I'm standing in line, right? Instead of, I'm at Epcot Center, right? And I just went to Italy for lunch. <laughs> awesome, right? I went to France and got a tart or a strawberry tart from France. That's crazy, and, I, and it's an hour from my house. Like, or I'm waiting in line. And oh my goodness. And oh my word. And come on guys, let's go. Why aren't we happier? Why aren't you happier? We did all this for you. Like what? What? Like what happens inside of me? And so he's warning us, right? He's warning us about becoming someone who's always upset with the way things are. 
We're always upset with the way people are treating you. And just reading this passage this week and thinking about this, right? How many times do I become impatient with people, but secondarily, or actually primarily, how many times this week or today have I been impatient with God? We want to fight against that. So he says, right? He says this, don't grumble against each other, but be patient. If you take the Greek word there, it's uh, my, my, uh, macro, macrothymeo. I know a lot of you went over that this week. Um, which, here's what it literally means. Are you long to anger? Are you the type of person that's long to anger or slow to anger? Do you have a long wick, right? Or a, or a, or a short wick? He talks about, hey, here, here's, ble- here's a blessed life. Someone who what? You've heard of Job's perseverance, his endurance, his long-suffering, that's a patient type of person. That's, hey, you know what? That's someone that uh, is fixed. It's, he is steadfast, right? He, he, he will obey. He won't budge. And, and when you think about your own life, when I think about my own life, hey, um, why do I grumble? Why do I find the person and say, hey, it needs to be this way? Why, why, why do the... Um, why, why do those black spots in my heart come out when I'm, you know, coaching, uh, coaching on a baseball diamond or a soccer field? And I think, you know, a, a, a certain kid should be able to do something, and he's giving his all, and he can't. But that's annoying to me. I mean, come on, right? I mean, I'm supposed to be a pastor, and all of a sudden, you realize that grumbling is complaining, Right? Grumbling is, is, is kind of looking for an opportunity to zing people, right? It's, it's finding fault. It's scorning people. And, and you notice that here, um, when, when, we, when we talk about grumbling, grumbling can, can start as simply this, is this, this being the de- is, is a, a critique of something. You're just giving a truthful assessment of, some, of something, of someone, of some situation. Grumbling begins with a legitimate critique, and you think, no, I'm just being honest, Right? I'm not going to be Pollyanna here. I'm just going to be honest. But what happens is that legitimate critique is always focused on the other person consistently, right? And when that is consistently focused on others and you don't look at yourself, right? You're not honestly looking at your own heart and you don't have hope for that other person. Man, we change. I change. You, would not, you do not want to be around me when I am like this, some of you say, well, you know what, um, Frank, is this just another example in the Bible of, of like uh, Christianity being absolutely unreal- unrealistic in its standards, right? You read this stuff and you're like, come on, Taylor. I mean, really? We're, we're, I mean, this is, the, uh, this is sweating the small stuff, pal. There's no way to do this. What's so bad? Everybody grumbles. We're here in Tampa. It's Gasparilla. I mean, come on. There's just going to be craziness, Right? But when you look at what James says, he's so serious because he says this, grumbling is a seed of something that's terribly poisonous and toxic in our hearts. That's what he's trying to get at. That that grumbling is the seed, it's the beginning, right? Because God doesn't condemn things. Why? Just because you enjoy them or because they're easier, because he wants to give you some busy homework. That's not why he condemns things, right? A doctor doesn't forbid a patient from eating something just because it tastes good, right? Taylor, slow down on the Twinkies and the lemon bars, right? I mean, like, no. 
God, he's like, look, it's so serious that I, I want you to know there's a judge there. And he sees you. And I want you to know that there's a judge there. And so when grumbling begins, you need to understand there is a judge that sees you. That's what he's painting for us. Why? Because God only condemns those things that are eating away at the fabric of the peace that you can experience. Who did Jesus, I mean, how is Jesus uh, referred to as? The Prince of Peace. When Jesus comes, what does he want? He wants there to be harmony. He wants there to be unity in in the family room, right? He wants there to be unity in churches. uh, And and not church splits, right? And not church, uh, you know, people gossiping behind uh, someone else's back. Not, Not that happening in family. And so when you grumble, God is saying, you're eating away the fabric of how I designed you. You know, in the garden, it wasn't, until, it wasn't until the snake came and tried to what? Grumble and start grumbling in the heart of Eve that, you know, this whole thing was, was destroyed. And so when you think about grumbling in your own life, you know, and I know, it only begins with a mood, right? Just a mood. I'm just in a bad mood. I don't, no, 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 don't, don't. And next thing you know, that mood plays itself out with words, and then you're in a dark hour and you embrace it. And it begins to play itself out, right, in your, um, in your relationships. And the way you talk to your dad and the way you're, you talk to your son and the way you talk to your wife and the way you talk to your husband. And it eats away and James is seeing it and it's hurting, right? It's hurting the church. And what James is saying is there's nothing more miserable than to not be able to get out of yourself, you know, uh, a couple of guys describe hell as an endless autobiography. Hell is literally just thinking about yourself and talking about self. You cannot get out of self. It's, it's what you are. You are about you. Um, and so hell says, that's right. Your life for mine because I will live and you will die. And I will kill you because I want to live. Have you been there? Do you know people that are there? How do you deal with impatient people? How do you deal with the impatience in your heart? How do you overcome this, right? How do you do it? So God describes himself in the book of Exodus as this, I'm the Lord and here's what I am. I'm slow to anger and I'm abounding in love. So I think it was Wednesday, right out here in the, um, in the concrete uh, area, uh, right outside the preschool, there was a mom with her daughter, and the mom was trying, trying to talk with another, with another woman, and, um, and this girl kept like, um, like, mom, let's go, you know, kind of like pointing, and she's like, no, no, wait, I'm talking, and then she'd have to kind of go get her, come back here, come on, she, she's real, real young, and you could tell she wanted to go, and she was just annoying the stew out of the mom, right, and, and you could just, you could just see, um, uh, the, the mom, you know, was just trying to, trying to cope with this little girl who just kept going. She didn't want her to run out in the driveway there and kept pulling her back. She wanted to have this conversation. And it happened for, you know, a little bit. I was right in here, and the, the lady couldn't see me. Um, and so just watching it, you know, I don't know if that's bad or not. I just thought it was, it was entertaining to watch a little bit. It sounds weird, but whatever. Um, and, and then, you know, what, you know what I saw? I saw this mom, right, who you know, had this annoying kid around her, right? And, um, and then she like picks up her daughter and her car was right here in the driveway. And she picks up her daughter and she just brings her over and she puts her in the seat, right? Locks her down, locks her in it, right? 
And then you just see her and she just takes her face and just kisses her face, like kisses her cheek, kisses her other cheek, and then kisses her on the forehead. She says, I love you. I mean, it was just like, she just annoyed the stew out of you, right? Like, what in the world? And then here's this mom and she looks at her little baby girl. I love you. And I'm like, what? How cool was that? And I, I begin to think, you know what? I'm that little girl, right? Like, that is me. I am, um, I am the one who annoys the stank out of God. I am the one who grumbles to him about everything, about, you know, um, having a beautiful family and having a beautiful church, having people that uh, put up with me. I, I, can, I can complain about the smallest things to God, and I'm just that kid to him. And you know what he does? He puts me into my seat, and he says, Frankie, I love you. I love you no matter what. And I thought to myself, you know, what's the only way that can change my mindset when I'm grumbling about someone else? When I look at that person and I accuse them in my heart or maybe even in my words, the only thing that can melt my heart is when I begin to realize, you know what? Um, I am that to God. And you know how much I've taxed God's patience? And he's always been patient with me. No matter what I've done, no, no matter how much of a brat I've become to God, he has been patient to me. Like, I am the grumbler. Like, I am that. And if you, right, if you can't see that, I think that's going to be the biggest tragedy of this sermon. If you walk out of here and you can't see, you know what? I am that grumbler to God. I am that little kid who is annoying right? And irritates God and says, I want it now, God, and I want it now. And God says, hey, Frank, Taylor, settle down. I love you, buddy. I love you. You're always going to be mine. And that patience, you know, the pay, maybe you had a grandmother who's just so patient with you that when that patient comes towards you, when you feel like, man, I, I should have taxed or tapped out all of God's patience. And, and he, it's, it's an endless amount of patience that he has for me, right? When we begin to think like that, what happens to us, right? We, we begin to understand um, the love of the Father. When, when we do that well, when you see that mom do that, and you, and you feel that in some ways come out towards your kids, and you realize that you're the kid, and God is your Father, and He is patient with you. You want to change your mindset? you got to stare at God. You can't stare at other people and grumble and critique, do are, are we a church that grumbles? So I've been asking that question. Is Westtown Church a church that grumbles, that complains, that critiques, that always wants more, that is never satisfied? Well, you know, I, I think about people that have been patient with me as a pastor. Times that I, I just haven't had my A game and I feel like I've, and I think about those people over the history of our church. And man, you know what? Um, for me, they're the safest people for me because they see my warts, right? They see my warts, and they've seen it, and I've said I'm sorry, and they said, hey, it's okay. Man, I'm patient with you, Frank. <laughs> Don't be a knucklehead anymore, but I'm patient with you. You know who you are, and the trust that's there, if you're a brother who's patient with a sister, and that sister all of a sudden realizes, man, you know what? Um... I grumble a lot, and I can see my own selfishness, and my sister still loves me. 
or my brother sits there and listens to it. Patience played its, playing itself out in the family, it's a game changer. When you know you have a patient dad that you, have, that you can go home to or a patient mom, you want to be there. And that's what's not happening here in the book of James. He's saying we're, we become grumblers and critiquers and, and pointer-outers of all everybody else's spots instead of being patient. And God is saying, I have been patient with you. In fact, he goes on one, one more. One more level, and he says, he says, who does he refer to? He says, I'm going to give you an example. Right? Here's an example. It's an example of patience in the face of suffering. Take the prophets. He goes and he says, you know, I, I want you to think about the prophets. Now think about them. Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet. What was the big deal about Isaiah? Uh, God comes to Isaiah and says, Isaiah, I have a job for you, right? I have a job for you. You can see, uh, you could read this in Isaiah 6. I'm going to send you to preach the gospel to a group of people over the next 20 and 30 years. That's what he says to Isaiah. And you know what? No one will believe you. <laughs> That's what he says. No one's going to believe you. No one is going to. But I, he says, I want to send you to people, right, who will never, ever understand. Now go ahead and get going. He comes to Jeremiah during the time of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. And they come in and they take the Israelites, right? They take them and they're, they're called, they're out of the promised land and they pulled into exile, present-day Iraq, right? From Jerusalem area to present-day Iraq. That's where, where the Israelites are. And uh, he says, Jeremiah, here's what I want you to tell the Israelites. I want you to tell them right now uh, that it's my will that their country be taken from them and that Nebuchadnezzar is going to be the instrument of Israelites' discipline, of the Israelites. And they're going to lose this battle and they're going to lose the war. Jeremiah, tell them that. That's why he's known as the depressed prophet, right? The weeping prophet. And so I want you to tell them to surrender to Nebuchadnezzar. Obey Nebuchadnezzar. And, of course, they don't want to, and they don't. And uh, when they get into exile, they say, well, God will deliver us, and we're not going to settle down in Babylon. And Jeremiah comes to them again and says, hey, look, you are not going to win. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to tell the exiles, Jeremiah, that you have to submit to the Babylonian king, that you have to get involved in the city, that you have to live in a pagan city and embrace that city, and you have to work for the peace of that city and pray for the peace of that city and so on. He says, do that, Jeremiah, please. Now, Jeremiah looks at him and says, that's what I have to do for the next 20 years? And he says, God, everybody's going to think I'm a traitor, right? That you're telling me I have to say the Lord's will is that you surrender to this pagan um, king. Give in, give up, accept that you're in exile. They're going to think I'm a traitor, and they did. That's exactly the way they saw Jeremiah. Um, and Jeremiah said, okay, um, I'll do it. And to the end, he had, a, had a harsh life, right? He had a harsh life, but even in, um, in his suffering, he showed patience, right, towards the Israelites. Final example is this. If you've never read the book Hosea, please read it. It's, uh, it's a very, very underrated book. Um, but you have Hosea, and uh, God comes to Hosea, and he says this. Hosea, you're never going to be any kind of a prophet until you understand what my life is like. That's what God said to Hosea. So you're going to get my life, God said. Therefore, I'm going to, I want you to marry a woman named Gomer who's going to be unfaithful to you. Hosea, you're never going to know what it's like to be God until you realize you're married to a prostitute that cheats on you, 
That's what it's like to be the God of the Israelites because the Israelites always cheat on me. I do things like part the Red Sea and do all these things and then they go and they love another God. They have, a, uh, um, they have another woman. And um, he, Hosea says back to God, well, she's going to continually commit adultery. You're going to have to continually forgive her and go back and get her and bring her back. That's how your life is going to go, Hosea. Um, because you're never going to understand what my life is like as a God, as the God, um, unless you go through this, unless you go through this suffering. And Hosea says, okay, right? I will. He says to Hosea, get going, to Jeremiah, get going, to Isaiah, get going, and their lives were a mess. And nothing ever went right for these fellows, right? He's using them as an example, right? But he says to them, I want you to be steadfast. I want you to be firm, right? I want you to obey. Then here's what's so interesting about these examples. If they had decided to do what looked practical, right? Which would have been disobey God. No way, God, I'm not going to marry that girl. No way, God, I'm not going to tell them that, right? To avoid suffering through disobedience. If they had decided not to stand their ground, you and I would have never heard of these guys. Never. We wouldn't have. Right? And so here we are. And Isaiah and Jeremiah and Hosea, and we realize millions of people, right, um, were helped through them. And they had no idea that millions of people were going to be helped through the books of the Bible that they wrote. 700, you know, or 2,700 years ago. They didn't know, but you know what? They stood firm. I ask you this morning, what does it look like to be patient? What does it look like not to grumble? God says, look, if you want the way of hell, sacrifice sacrifice others for yourself. If you want heaven, sacrifice yourself for others. When we become patient, our relationships change within the family. The words we use are different. The the marriages that we have are different, right? I mean, we, we utterly change. My question is this. Do you have those types of relationships here at Westtown? We want this, one of our values is we want this to be uh, a place to belong. I know of uh, several groups where this is happening. Patience is all over certain groups. You know, girlfriends that are just patient for one another while they're going through hard times. And they're just there for them. And they're patient and they let them talk. And it's not about them. It's about giving to someone else, right? Uh, you know, fellas that will say, I got to go, uh, I need a beer, I need to go out and have a beer, I just need to talk, I'm struggling in my marriage. And these types of relationships are happening where patience, God's patience, when we realize God has been patient with us, we can sit there and listen and love and people begin to trust us and you become little Christs, right? It's the definition of Christian. We can do more. We can. We can do more as a church. But it, it requires What? It requires us understanding, right, the destructive power of grumbling, of accusing, of complaining. And and for people to get together and to, to, you know, earlier in the book it says, consider the trials that you go through with joy. Count it as all joy because you know what I want to create in you through this? I want you to become mature. I want to use you. I want you to become the disciples. And so as, as you think about your own life, Where does patience fall? Are you a patient person? Do you know God's been patient with you? He has. All the knuckle-headed stuff you've done, I've done. He says, no, no, I'm committed to you. 
no matter what. I, that's the only catalyst, that's the only engine I know how to change my mindset. Is that, is, is, I realize it's been given to me. Why do I care if that kid drops seven straight fly balls? <laughs> Why? You know, what, what's, what's the grumbling inside of me? What, what's that? No, I want what I want right now instead of, no, no I, want, I want, this is a kid. This is a newcomer into the church. They're not going to be where certain people are in this church. They're, they're still drinking milk. Others of you are eating meat, but that's part of the process. Why would a pastor be frustrated or grumbling about someone who's young in the faith and is still drinking formula? That's good for them. That's all that they can digest, and I want them to be here. And I begin to grumble because I want more maturity, but that process is where God is trying to tell me, hey, have patience. Who can you be patient with after this service? Who can you just give space to in a room to be what they are? And you can kill yourself and serve them, right? Because that's heaven. Jesus says that's heaven on earth. Instead, what maybe some of us are doing, and we don't even realize it, is we're walking down the road to hell, and we say, I will sacrifice you for me. What does it look like for you to be patient? What does it look like for me to be patient, for us to be a patient church for one another? Because God was sure patient to us. That's the only place that we can go. James wants Westtown Church to, to mature and to grow. Um, where are you? Please, please take something uh, practical and applicable. And, and, and it's 1151, right? You can apply this stuff at 1152, at 1205, at 305, at lunch today, at dinner today, Monday morning. Who can you be patient with? Who can you stop grumbling about? Um, because God would sure have, have a whole lot of, of material to grumble about his son, Frank, and what I haven't done or what I have done against him. And I think he would have the same thing to say about you because we are sinners in need of a savior. And if we know he hasn't and he's been patient, let that wave over us and inform all of our relationships. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray and ask God to work inside of us. God, you know my impatient heart. God, you know I want things now. I don't like to wait, but you promised that those that wait upon the Lord... You are going to renew their strength like the eagle. And there's some people in this room right now that they, um, there's just too much urgency. Um, and they don't want to wait on you. And um, God, if you would have been, if you wouldn't have waited on us, we, we, would, uh, we wouldn't have any hope. But we do, because you are so patient. Thank you for that. Um, thank you for being a loving father who puts up with irritable little kids and still puts us in our seat and kisses us and says, I'm so glad you're my son and I'm so glad you're my daughter. Father, we love you and we need that type of grace in our homes and we need that type of grace in our church, God. Grow us, God. Mature us in your name. Amen.